Here in Australia, we have a long way to go to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. The federal government regards economic empowerment as a key way of raising Indigenous living standards. And its Indigenous procurement policy, known as IPP, is a central plank in its promotion of this goal. The IPP sets a target for the number of government contracts that go to Indigenous businesses. Bevan Mailman, an Indigenous commercial lawyer, is a partner with Jarama Legal. He says the Indigenous procurement program is a big success. The program is an initiative implemented at a Commonwealth level so the government can use its buying power and support the growth of Indigenous enterprise around Australia. The policy was implemented in 2015. So the idea is that a certain percentage of government contractors should be Indigenous businesses. Is that right? Correct. The policy states that they're looking at 3% of contracts under Indigenous Procurement Policy Commonwealth going to Indigenous companies. And since... 2015, what has been the goal and have they reached the goal? I think in the first year, the Commonwealth reached their goal, actually exceeded the 3%. I think the growth rate was 6.2 million taken from 1st of July 2015. Two years later, it was over a billion dollars in spend. I think there was growth rate in one year of 5,000%. So significant uptake and support from government engaging Indigenous businesses through the IPP. And so you would regard this as a big success? I think so. I think you have to listen to the market when you talk to business leaders, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. They, they would say, it has been quoted, that it's the, probably the most successful policy, Indigenous policy ever implemented in Australia. So how many Indigenous-owned businesses have been awarded contracts under this scheme? I think about a 1,000, just looking at the latest figures, have been awarded contracts. Now tell me about the kinds of industries where Indigenous players have been able to, to take up these opportunities. When you look at the history of, of Australian Indigenous enterprise, a lot of it has grown through mining. So from that, you'll see the uptake as far as Indigenous contracts under the IPP are around mining-related activities or businesses like civil works, construction, electrical, things like that. So that's where the real growth is because there were existing businesses in the market prior to the IPP. So in some ways, private enterprise was ahead of the game. In some ways, they were. I think uh, in the Pilbara and Neville Stewart, you know, Indigenous businessman, grew a, a wonderful company over a number of years in the, in the Pilbara region. I think turned over around $60 million through his business. That was before the IPP. And so we've got to, in those kind of civil works in infrastructure, what other kinds of businesses are we seeing an uptake in? I think you see a growth in consulting around cultural heritage training, cultural awareness training. So a lot of Indigenous consultants are entering into that space to deliver to non-Indigenous companies who want to better understand how to engage with Indigenous businesses. What other companies have kind of taken up those opportunities? You have companies, Dice Australia, it's an Indigenous Northern Territory company started by Raymond Pratt, he's only a young Indigenous businessman, Thomas Hutchison with Dundee Rock, remote communities, remote businesses that have also, under the IPP, secured contracts as well. What do they do? Uh, Dice Australia is an electrical contractor. Tom Hutchison, he's a painter, basically, so he's formed a joint venture with Juratech. He's worked in Wadai community in the Northern Territory for a number of years. He ran a team of 12 Indigenous painters, wonderful entrepreneur. And I think there's a real focus, although they're interested in the IPP, they, they just want to paint 
community housings, run cabling so that communities can receive communication to put in the right electrical system. So there's there's always a focus on the IPP, but there's never a forgetting of where you come from. And they're always looking for those opportunities to create and give back to those communities, which is a wonderful thing as a, as a lawyer and consultant to see happening in the community. What about in states like New South Wales and Victoria? Who have been the main players there? From an Indigenous perspective, I would say PSG Holdings. They've started their business seven years ago, pretty much under the IPP. Seven years, they've grown to a 200-employee company in seven years. What do they do? Everything from construction to cleaning to facilities management. Now, their group of subsidiaries employ about 200 people and have about 70 Indigenous employees. So that's astounding that a company has grown so much and also has the sensitivities to engage the market, Indigenous market, and support the Indigenous communities as well. And you see the uptake, not only in employment, but I think they have around 80 to 100 Indigenous suppliers on their books that they're using or looking to use. So that's wonderful. Okay, so I have heard the term, and I've seen it in media reports, of black cladding. It's the equivalent, I guess, of greenwashing. The idea being that this is uh, only privileging a few well-connected businesses. Uh, what do you say to those sorts of criticisms? I think the term black cladding is problematic. I really think the, the real issue is, is value being transferred down to Indigenous businesses and community? That's the question. There's nothing wrong with joint venturing, and you can call it whatever you like. It's a standard business practice. Now, if those companies that come together delivering value to Indigenous business and community, then it's wonderful. If they're not, then you know, those companies are identified through the auditing process in government or through the market itself, in the Indigenous market, who prefers to engage with those companies that are really changing the lives of community members around Australia. I think it was last year the Australian and Crikey reported that uh, some public servants had written to the PM's department about their concern that this scheme was a way of some companies escaping the competitive tendering process through not real joint ventures with, with Indigenous people. What's your response to those sorts of criticisms? I think there has been a response to that. Recently the government's amended its uh, criteria around certification of Indigenous businesses with Supply Nation, so they've tightened things there. Supply Nation of the certification body, other Certification and a lobby body for Indigenous businesses. They've tightened their ropes around ensuring that Indigenous companies do benefit from the IPP first and foremost. But I guess at the end of the day, business is business and business is an opportunistic market. And it's up to, I guess, Indigenous businessmen and women to be well educated in, in how to put together the right joint venture. So they're KPIs around Indigenous engagement, around outcomes for Indigenous communities are met. What about the states and territories? Do they also have similar schemes? They do. Queensland launched its Indigenous procurement policy in 2016. Unlike the federal policy, the Queensland policy implemented a 3% target of value, overall value. I think the Queensland government spends about $20 billion, so it's 3% of that value. Uh, New South Wales has uh, implemented something similar. Victoria has the Aboriginal business strategy. Western Australia launched their Indigenous procurement policy, I think, this year, 1st of July. So there's certainly an uptake, not from just the state and territory governments, but also from local councils as well. So a lot of local councils are looking 
to implement Indigenous procurement policies, which is probably really important given that, you know, you have large Indigenous communities in places like Shepparton, Mildura. So when you have Indigenous procurement policies in local areas, there's a direct benefit to these remote communities. And I understand that under the Commonwealth scheme, there's also an idea that if you have a contract worth $7.5 million or more, then you need to have built in your own Indigenous procurement program. So you need to be subcontracting out a percentage of your work to Indigenous-owned businesses. Yes, it's about, I think it's 4%, whether it's made up of employment and subcontracting. That's changing business practices around Australia and probably creating more work for lawyers as well. But uh, you have a a market or a space where Indigenous people are engaging with non-Indigenous companies in real intangible terms. And I think that's really beneficial for the spirit of reconciliation across this nation. There has been controversy in the past with the Northern Territory Indigenous Employment Professional Sum. That was a scheme which gave bonuses to companies that achieved something like 30% of its uh, workforce being Indigenous. And that was, I think, um, tossed out at some point. What do you know about that? I'm not, I'm not too familiar with that, but I have seen similar programs. But it's an era where, and as recognised by the Victorian government, that it's a season for Indigenous people, Indigenous communities, Indigenous business to help lead in relation to their economic growth of those communities. And the IPP puts Indigenous peoples, Indigenous business front and centre, not behind, front and centre in the market. I think that's a wonderful thing and is a real distinguishing factor if you compare it to past policies. Bevan Marwin, this kind of program is relatively new in Australia, but it's been around for quite a few years in the USA. What's it called there and how effective has it been? The Minority Supply Council has is a similar initiative to the IPP in Australia. It's 40 years old. It's a $1.7 trillion economy and has certainly supported not just First Nations Americans, but also Hispanic, African Americans, Asian. So there's a number of minority groups that have been supported through the IPP in the US. You've been a commercial lawyer for many, many years, but you'll be one of the partners in this new firm, Jerema Legal, a new Indigenous-owned commercial law firm. I think it's a joint venture with Norton Rose Fulbright, which is a pretty big downtown law firm. Will you be seeking access to work under the IPP? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, you need to run a commercial law firm. And we're the first national Indigenous law firm in Australia. So it's wonderful to be positioned to access the IPP. Also, I actually started my career as a cadet with Norton Rose Fulbright. I did my articles of clerkship with them nearly 20 years ago. They're not an unfamiliar, I know many of the partners, and it's wonderful to come back and work with them. And for them to stand with myself and Brian Barrow, the other partner, to do some wonderful things. Of course, the federal government requires a lot of legal advice and a lot of legal services. So you'll be looking for some of that work coming to them and saying, look, we qualify under this IPP. Absolutely. I think there's opportunity to also, given our unique cultural and traditional understanding of Indigenous peoples, to advise government in areas such as copyright of Indigenous artwork, if you like, and provide real solutions in areas that involve Indigenous peoples. Seeking government work isn't the only kind of work you'll be looking for, is it? Absolutely not. After spending a number of years working in the Pilbara and the Kimberley region with remote communities, we saw the need to not only need, but the opportunity to work with those communities in relation to land developments around agribusiness and solar as well. So that opportunity and that support for the communities was just as much as a factor in establishing Jarama Legal as was the IPP.
Okay, so you'll be working with government, for governments, but also for Indigenous businesses and I guess also for mainstream corporates. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just about creating wonderful businesses, it's about, about creating wonderful businesses that do wonderful things in the communities and that's why it's important to link those two. So Bevan Mailman, are there many Indigenous commercial lawyers out there? I think there's very few. I, Brian Barrow and myself are, are one of a handful of experienced corporate lawyers. Other than that, there's not many commercial Indigenous lawyers. There are lots of Indigenous lawyers, but where are they working? A lot of them work um, with legal aid. And why is that? Because Indigenous people have a real community spirit. They love to be in support and work with their community members. You know, a lot of our members have unfortunately been through the justice system. So it's wonderful if you can go back and support those, especially the youth. However, with the commercial law firm, it's really about going upstream and creating opportunities, employment to reduce some of the disadvantaging communities. I guess the IPP and these kinds of programs, they're about creating pipelines. And in a way, you're part of that pipeline. Absolutely. I think when you look at it, having access to university through a bridging course that target Indigenous people and then going on to work in a firm like Norton Rose Fulbright, NAB, and now coming back to be part of this substantial joint venture and deliver value back to the community. It is a pipeline that takes many players with the right values to come together end-to-end to see that value really return and change remote communities especially, but Indigenous communities all over Australia. Commercial lawyer Bevan Mailman, partner with Jeremy Legal. On RN, Radio Australia, News Radio, or available as a podcast, this is The Law Report. I'm Damien Carrick.